to a meaningful marketplace. I'm Sarah Massoni from Oregon State University's Food Innovation Center, where I've helped countless dreamers launch their new food products. It's the science of taking a food delight from the kitchen to mass manufacturing and still keeping its great taste. That's what I do. I've been called the woman with the million-dollar palate, although I haven't tried to cash that check yet. Listen in weekly for real-life stories. Sarah Marshall, owner of Marshall's Hot Sauce and author of Preservation Pantry, modern canning from root to top and stem to core. I love inspiring business owners to get started on their journeys, encouraging folks to be part of their local community, and I'm excited to help business owners tell their stories. Join us as we explore the journeys of women entrepreneurs in the food and beverage industry. Hello and welcome to Missoni and Marshall, the meaningful marketplace. Thanks for joining us as we hear stories of food and beverage industry entrepreneurs. We are glad that you joined us today. We continue to bring you stories of hope and inspiration for all of our listeners out there. This is Sarah Marshall, owner of Marshall's Hot Sauce. And Sarah Missoni of Oregon State University's Food Innovation Center. Sarah, we had a little break um, for a couple of weeks. Tell me what you've been up to. Anything exciting? Oh, man. Picking tomatoes, picking cucumbers, and watching my peppers get ripe. And I wanted to ask you, like, what do I do? Just harvest all the peppers and bring them to you? And that's how I get a hot sauce? Do you want, you want me to make you a garden, a ceremony garden hot sauce? I was thinking maybe. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Bring them on over. I'm ready. Anytime. Okay. I'm going to pick them and bring them over. Okay. We'll find something delicious to pair them with. Do you know what kind of peppers you have growing? I have jalapenos. Mm. I have some, a few sweet peppers. I have serranos, um, scorpions, some other really hot, some hot peppers. I didn't even, I don't even know what they're called. They're just look really hot. They're tiny red shrivelly sort of crazy looking peppers. Yeah, cool. Well, then it's going to be a spicy one if you have scorpion peppers in there. So that's fine. What I usually like to pair um, the peppers with something a little bit sweet. What's your favorite fruit? Um, I have figs too. Could we do a fig and something? Would that be weird? We could, we could, it might be a little weird just because so many seeds, but we could make a fig vinegar and use that in the hot sauce. And that would be okay. Cool. You well, I'll, bring, that? I'll bring some of everything. Okay. And you can figure it out. Cool. Because I have green tomatoes and I have red tomatoes. And yeah. I have well, some baby carrots. Stay tuned, everybody. Sarah Masoni's garden hot sauce is going to be on its way. <laughs> Maybe there'll be some. Well, you were telling me about one of your friends who moved to New York who had some tricky things happen. Maybe we could auction off some of the hot sauce. That's a great idea. That would be really good. Yeah. Once once we have that um, GoFundMe up, we'll we'll tell people all about it and how they can get the special sauce. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> that sounds really good. Well, I'm glad you've been um, in the garden. I've just been, um, it sounds crazy, but I'm in um, Christmas holiday mode. So all of our stores are, busy. are, yeah, I have two pallets of sauce wrapped in my driveway right now, ready to be picked up by a truck. So. <laughs> I've been Wonderful. busy doing that. Yeah. But it's been great. I'm glad to have orders coming in. But you were on Sunny's Island over the weekend. I saw I was. you up, up on yeah. top of the hay bales. 
Yes, we went out to the Pumpkin Patch, which is a farm out there. Um, we've been doing the Sovi Island Farmers Market. It switches around to different farms every month, so it's the second Sunday of every month. We, and so we were out there this week, and it was and, beautiful and wonderful. And, and I you love bought, it. Bought a crazy hamburger for Dirk that had like I sure did macaroni and cheese <laughs> cooked on like the cheese was uh-huh. like melted all the way down into the griddle and yeah. So risky. sometimes. Sometimes Dirk, Dirk will tell me that I can, you know, he doesn't really care what he eats. So he's like, give me whatever you want. So I, I usually pick the craziest thing on the menu. So, so <laughs> we're at the, crazy. yeah, we're at the pumpkin patch and they raise their own cattle and they make their own, you know, beef. Yeah, they have burgers. a nice store. They do. They have a great store. They have great food. And so I got the mac and cheese burger for Dirk because it was the craziest thing that you could get. And that he was, pretty awesome he was shocked and amazed and loved he it. He actually liked so it. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he totally liked it. That's great. Well, we're not just here to talk about mac and cheese burgers. We have a special guest with us today. I would like to introduce Kathy Wims. She is the chef and owner of multiple restaurants here in Portland, Nostrana Oven and Shaker. Into Oh, I'm going to say this wrong. Inoteca Nostrana. Hopefully you can correct me, Kathy, when you come on. But we would like to welcome you. Thank you for being a guest on the show. Tell me how to say the name of your wine bar. I think I just totally ruined it. uh, Eno is from the Greek word for wine. So Enoteca means like a place to buy wine or to drink wine. So Enoteca Nostrana. And Nostrana means ours in Italian, as in yours and mine. And But it has a second meaning that means what's local and what's right from your very own area. Oh. it had, and with that comes this, um, like a higher expectation because it's because it's the place where you're from. It's the vegetables um, that come from your actual area that are grown like right in your area. So if you're in Italy, or actually in most of Europe, actually, there's by law they have to say where the provenance of vegetables and maybe meat and fruit come from in the marketplace. Nice. So if it says, let's say it, it let's say um, South Africa, South Africa. And so, you know, it's from South Africa. Let's say it would say um, Sicilia. So, you know, it's from Sicily. If it could say Italia, it's somewhere in Italy, but you don't really know. But if it says Nostrana, it means, or, and that's, local. Not, yeah, local and right from where you are and the, and the thought and the feeling of the people buying it is that it ha- must be the best and it must be better because it's grown in their own area. Very cool. That is super cool. I didn't even know that. I um, have been to your restaurant probably more than any other restaurant in Portland. <laughs> and oh, I never, yeah, I never a- knew that that was the meaning. <laughs> frustrating time. No, thank you. That makes me feel really good. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I um I actually have a um fun story for you, and I I of course know that you won't know this, but um one of my favorite dishes in your restaurant at Nostrana is um the Nostrana salad, which is this for people who haven't had it. It's this beautiful radicchio salad with cornmeal, breadcrumbs, rosemary. It's so wonderful. I don't even um 
I can't even explain to you how great it is. But when I went there and had it for the first time, you were you were there. This was a very long time ago, and you were in the kitchen. And I had asked the um, waitress about it, and she was like, "Oh, well, let me talk to Kathy." And so you ended up saying that she could make a copy of the recipe for me, and so she made a copy of it, and I took it home. And then, you know. 15 years or whatever later, I, when I wrote my canning book, I wrote about your salad because it really did change how I felt about radicchio because I, I just never did anything with it. I never cooked with it. I never had it. I never really liked it because I thought it was so bitter, but in your recipe, you had talked about soaking the radicchio in ice water. And so I went home when, when I took the recipe and I did it and it like totally changed my view for my entire lifetime. And so I dedicated this recipe in my book to you and your restaurant because you made me appreciate radicchio. <laughs> oh, wow. Thank you. What was, what was the recipe in the book? It, it was like for the, um, for the salad dressing of how to make it. And then I had mm -hmm. asked her about, about radicchio and she was like oh yeah we soak it and so then i i knew how to do that <laughs> that's cool sarah okay now it really helps because it's the thing that happens in the garden in the winter time after the first frost and so many um vegetables become sweeter than the winter kinds of vegetables like the chards and the um the brassicas and the the cat i guess cabbage with the brassica but all of those so it, soaking it in ice water simulates that first frost kind of thing that happens to vegetables where they send all their sugar into the plant. And because yeah. it's such a popular salad, we have to have it on the menu all year round. We, we, don't, we can't just have it in the winter because it's kind of our money maker. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's how we simulate that flavor of the sweetness of a bitter, bitter vegetable like radicchio. Cool. Yeah. Well, it was something that really like changed my view forever. I still, my version that I made at home and that even that I put in my book is not the same as yours as at all because yours is so much better. <laughs> like, oh, no. <laughs> I, I doubt that, but <laughs> it just feels very special. I, I was wondering if you have it on the menu all the time. It does seem like whenever I've gone, it is always there. I have, always... have it. It's on the menu. It's one of the few things that's always on the menu because basically our menu is driven by what we buy from our farmers. And so it's changing all the time. But that is one of the few staples that never leaves the menu. What about the cannellini bean and albacore salad? Because that's the one yeah, I always get. And I watched a video of you cooking the beans from nine years ago. It's on <laughs> YouTube. And you too. It's funny when we opened Nostrana and we would, we were, we turned, um, we will turn 16 in October, but there were a few things that I don't know how I figured it out, but there were a few things that I just decided were going to be menu staples and they managed to stay menu staples. And none of, uh, none of them have I had to cut, which I don't know how I figured that out. But one was the tuna bean salad. One yeah, was I love the that. Radicchio salad, which is kind of a version of a Caesar salad. And another one is a steak that we have on the menu called tagliata, which is tagliare in Italian means to cut. 
So it's a steak that's grilled, a flat iron steak, and it's grilled and then it's sliced and it's served over a bed of arugula with a garlic rosemary sauce made from olive oil. And that's another one of the things that never changes. And I think that maybe besides those, there's a a three desserts maybe that never change that are always on the menu, but everything else is constantly in flux. That's cool. Is the um, butterscotch budino one that always is on there? Yeah, that's always on there. And um, actually, that's not my recipe at all. I credit Nancy Silverton for that, who's a friend and an amazing chef in Los Angeles. And her name is on it on the menu. And I'm so happy that she still likes me, even though I have not on the menu. (laughs) It's so good. I whenever I see it on there, I always get it. So it must be every time. (laughs) You always have it. That wasn't a pre-decided thing. I just put it on early on, like literally 15 years ago. And I I thought, okay, well, it's time to change the dessert menu. I'm going to change a few things. And all of my um, servers, the waiters and waitresses, they all came to me and they said, how can you take that off? That's the thing I can sell, no problem. So <laughs> ever since then, it's never come off the menu either. Good. I'm I'm glad to know that it will always be there. (laughs) Well, we want to kind of um, help tell your story of how you became a restaurant owner. So can you walk us through your journey as a chef, where you've worked and then how that turned into you owning a restaurant? We also need to know how people can find you on the internet. So you can drop in your tag for Instagram and stuff too. Okay, well, Nostrana is spelled N-O-S-T-R-A-N-A. And so Nostrana.com is our website. And again, it means ours, as in yours and mine, but also what's local and what's most highly prized, like Nuestra in Spanish. So it's all the same, you know, Latin root. Um, So like I said, we um, are turning 16 in this crazy time. I've always loved food and oh, who doesn't, but my, um, my mother was a really good cook and I, I was a vegetarian when I was in high school and college. And I had to kind of teach myself how to cook. Basically when my mother told me when I told her I was going to be a vegetarian in high school, she got really angry and then she got smart and she said, okay, well you make a vegetarian dish for dinner and I'll, and I'll make another dish and we'll all eat you'll eat yours and but we'll all eat yours too so that sort of pushed me into learning how to cook and I enjoyed it and I was a Latin major in college and so I had an affinity for everything Italian and when I moved to Portland I was lucky enough to get a job at the best restaurant at the time in Portland it was called Genoa and it was a special occasion restaurant where people would come and eat a seven course meal where um, we decided exactly what they were going to eat. They had a couple of choices of like three entrees they could choose from a fish and a meat and a lighter meat, or they could have um, their choice of dessert, but otherwise it was all decided. It was like the set menu. And I saved my money um, when I moved to Portland because I'd heard of this restaurant and went to eat there and thought, oh my God, if I could work here, I would be the happiest cook on the planet. 
And but I had never gone to culinary school. I just so self-taught. And I would never have been brave enough to just knock on the door and, you know, ask to be considered for a job. But I had a friend that knew um, some other cooks at a sister restaurant. And she heard that called Bread and Ink Cafe and on Hawthorne in Portland. And she said, hey, my friend needs a job. And she heard that they were looking for cooks. And so I, I, I got a call to come in for an interview. And it was heaven. And I was so happy there. And I, I worked for seven years. And then I was able to become an owner. So I was there for a total of 20 years. And wow. it was a dream job in Portland. And it's where I learned so much about Italian food. And so much about sourcing, like we had, I remember my, my boss, her name was Amelia Hard, who hired me. She cooked for Luciano Pavarotti when he came she oh. at that Portland Opera for a bit wow. of art museum. And the, um, she was the first person to actually buy a fresh portini, portino mushroom to cook for Luciano Pavarotti. In, in our restaurant. And that it was just very exciting. Like we really cared about where everything came from. And we were one of the original, I would say, farm to table before that term was even a term. Yes. Um, I can go on about my further, <laughs> how I, I came to open Nostrana. Should I do that? Sure. Yeah. We'd love to hear it. Okay. So, so when I became owner of Genoa, I was also was buying the the wine for the wine list. And that was a great experience for me, learning about wine, buying a lot of Oregon wines, you know, such a general supported like the first winemakers um, in Oregon in like 1975, I think 73, 75, Irie and Amity and um, oh, so many of them. And but anyway, eventually I ended up taking over the, the job of buying the wine. And one of the perks of, of buying the wine was that I would was able to meet all of these Italian winemakers that were promoting their wine in Portland. And invariably, they would say, hey, you should come visit the winery. You know, we even have an apartment you can stay in and, and just come. And it's like, how great was that? And of course, they were mostly men at that time. Now, a lot of their a lot of um, their children, including their daughters, have taken over the winemaking. But at that time, in the um, early '90s, it was mostly men, and they were Italian men, and so that, they were very handsome. And I was like, "Oh yeah, that sounds great. I'll go. I'll go visit your winery anytime." You know, so so I was go so I started traveling to Italy. And the more I ate Italian food in Italy, the more I realized, and this was kind of sad and for me, that I didn't know what I was cooking. I didn't know what Italian food was. The food in Italy was so much purer and so much simpler and mm. so such direct flavors and so fresh that I thought, I need to relearn everything. I was just, you know, I was a self-taught cook and I learned from the other chefs working at, at Genoa and, you know, we made really good food, but it wasn't the food that you would make that Italians made. And I suddenly told myself, I just have to relearn everything. Wow. And so 
I know. And it's, I went about trying to do that. And I think I said earlier that Genoa was a very special occasion place. People celebrated their birthdays there. Divorces apparently happened and people had to decide who got the Genoa reservation. <laughs> like it was like, <laughs> it was a crazy historic place that everyone had their anniversary. I always was- wanted to go. I never got to go. <laughs> so, um, so it would think of how, what kind of a conservative atmosphere that that could make though so people wanted very special special things like rack of lamb with bernay sauce which is not italian at all that's so french it was it was kind of post-continental where people had quit saying the word continental cuisine but it was still kind of that way and so it was very hard to change it was hard to flip that and make people understand that something really simple and really pure, like a, a radicchio salad on a plate with a good dressing, was as fancy as rack of lamb or what would be, a, you know, a beef tenderloin steak. And so I had this crossroads between where my passion was and what I wanted to follow and what my business model was mm. and eventually I decided that I was wanted to follow my passion and make the purest Italian food that I could make as a as a woman that doesn't have any Italian blood in her system, you know. <laughs> so that's kind of how Nostrana was built. And Nostrana was was meant to make that kind of simpler food in a less um fancy environment. Um, more everyday kind of restaurant that you would come to eat at as opposed to a special occasion place you would wait all year to eat at. We used to even, we used to sell a ton of gift certificates because it was a really great um, gift to give someone an Ostron, I mean, a general gift certificate. They would, people would not redeem them. They were calling on the phone all the time saying, hey, I found this in a drawer. This gift certificate is 15 years old. Can I still use that? I mean, it was that <laughs> crazy kind of play. And I just wanted something that was more everyday, casual, um, trattoria type of cafe restaurant that you just walk into and have lunch or dinner and enjoy it, but not like hold it in some special sort of, I don't know, place where you felt like you couldn't go every day. Yeah. Well, I think that you definitely accomplished that. I think that um, you took all the wonderful, um, you know, ideas of it feeling special that Genoa had. I only went there one time, but um, and it was when I was in, you know, college for a friend's most special, like, you know, dinner. And so, you know, I'm. I think that it is a lovely place, but I think Nostrana is something that you can experience that loveliness every day, which is even better. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I feel that way too, but I appreciate hearing it from someone else. Yeah. yeah that's very nice. We're going to take a quick break and we'll come back and talk more with Kathy. We'll be right back. Oregon State University's College of Agricultural Sciences and the Food Innovation Center are proud sponsors of Meaningful Marketplace. With a mission to serve all Oregonians, we are committed to giving voice to those whose food and agricultural stories are not always heard. By providing access and opportunity for a more diverse and just food system, because food brings people together. 
All right, Kathy, I want to hear a little bit about some of these famous people that you got to spend time with in Venice and all sorts of different places in Italy and how they taught you how to cook real Italian food. Okay, I'm happy to talk about that. Who do you want to talk about first? Well, why don't we talk about Marcella Hazan okay. and Victor, who I studied with in um, in Venice. That sounds delightful. And I can tell the story about how that came about to be. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. So I was working at Genoa Restaurant and we had a bunch, we had, we had such an amazing group of chefs and it was just such an amazing place to learn and everything. And one of our head chefs had a radio program on Oregon public broadcasting. Oh. And she, she interviewed cookbook authors when they came into Portland. That's fun. And she told us that this woman, Marcella Hazan, who some people, many people probably know of, but I think the easiest way to describe her is she was equivalent of Julia Child for Italian food, for what Julia did for French food. She was coming to town to promote um, a new cookbook. Mm. And my, my friend, my fellow chef was going to interview her. And I said, wow. Wouldn't it be great if we could cook for her? Will you invite her and her husband, Victor, to come to the restaurant? And so she had a great interview, and they really sort of bonded together. And she said, would you like to come to this restaurant that I work at, Genoa? And her husband, Marcella's husband, Victor, said, oh, no, thank you for the invitation. He's very gracious. But we never eat Italian food in, in America. Like, like absolutely, like uh, Italian, Americans don't get Italian food. They don't understand it. And so why would I eat it? You know, they would like eat Japanese food or Chinese food. But, you know, it was just embarrassing for them to sit there and eat American made Italian food. So I was really sad when I heard that. And that was fine. And then I was working that day. And later on, I was cooking and making soup. And the phone rang at the restaurant. And I answered the phone. And it was Marcella's husband, Victor. And he said, oh, well, we had such a lovely time with your chef interviewing us that we've changed our mind. And we're wondering if we can come to dinner tonight. <laughs> and, oh, my God, the whole kitchen just erupted. <laughs> we were just, like, screaming and everything. And we were so nervous. And they came to dinner, um, Marcella and Victor. And then at the time, we had this separate room it was when people could actually still smoke in restaurants this is so oh. long so we had this separate sort of parlor in the in genoa that people could w go in and smoke like take a break during their meal because there's a long meal it was like two and a half hours at the very least to have these seven courses and they finished their meal but they had dessert in this parlor the smoking parlor and so marcella called for me and to come talk to her and so she basically interviewed me and asked me these questions and she had ordered this um on the menu as one of the main courses was a lamb dish that had olives and rosemary and tomatoes um and olive oil and she said oh this lamb dish tell me about this lamb dish it must be tuscan i said oh yes it's from this recipe by this very famous Florentine um, cookbook author. She said, I thought so. And then she asked me a couple other questions. And then she said, 
well, you know what? You need to come study with me in Venice. Because she had taught cooking classes at her home in Venice. And my jaw just, you know, I'm sure fell. And she said, I'm just going to move you up on the list. There's a waiting list that like goes for seven years, but you're going to be at the top of this list. And so I went to Venice and I got to study with her in her what home. What a treat. I know. I had That's so amazing. And I learned so much. And, uh, you know, it was beautiful to be in Venice. Every day we would arrive at like, we would arrive at 10 in the morning, not earlier, not later. That's very important to Victor. We had to all like, gather at the door. There were um, seven of us. And then we'd be invited up to their apartment. And then we would um, we would go over what we were going to learn that day. We would start cooking. And at a certain point, midway through late morning, we would stop. And then um, Victor, her husband, would give us a class on um different Italian tastes, like different kinds of bread or different nice. kinds of peas. Or, and then we would sort of start tasting a little bit of wine. And then Marcella would come in and she was a notorious smoker. And she would like smoke and have a glass of Jack Daniels because that's what she preferred to drink. Cooking, <laughs> And then we would sit down and have lunch and it would all be over about three o'clock. And that was, it was just amazing. And that went on for a full week. That's wonderful. And it was a dream for me. I can't believe I got so lucky. That's so That's lucky. amazing. I have a question, another question, because I fell in love with this Dario Sassini. He's on the most, famous, the most famous Italian butcher in the world. Oh, my God. <laughs> I saw that you were with him on one of your YouTube videos. I was like, oh, my God, for the Maya, <laughs> Maya Lata or whatever. Maya Lata. Yeah, maiale is Italian word for pork. So a maialata is a celebration of pork in Italian. <laughs> so I was just like, I hadn't, I mean, I obviously was studying about you today and I saw that and I was like, oh my God, I saw him on the Anthony Tucci's um, Italy. Have you watched that oh, series? Oh, wasn't that amazing? That oh, is the my- most amazing series. That was a great COVID gift just to be able to... We totally binge watched it. Oh, no. <laughs> so I was totally envious. I would love to meet Dario. Do you think there's an opportunity for him to come back to Portland ever? Oh, I think probably will. We had to cancel him coming twice. We were going to do the Maialata, which is centered around him and pork education and everything, but we had to cancel it. Because of COVID, it was supposed to be at the end of March 2020. Okay. And obviously we couldn't reschedule the following March, but I'm sure that it will happen again because we're okay. good friends and he's such an amazing, generous person. I'm definitely coming to that. <laughs> okay, well, well, make sure you know about it. Okay, that's going to be fantastic. And Kathy, I feel like you have cooked with all these great and wonderful people, but I think yeah. now, since you have done this for such a long time, I, I feel like people seek you out to learn from and to work in your kitchen. And you've had so many great people pass through your kitchen that have gone on to open their own restaurants or start their own businesses of all kinds. Are there anybody that you want to shout out any of your team that has done things that you're proud of? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's so many and it's, it's just been super great to see, you know, people that have come through the kitchen, like, 
have other successes and everything. One of my favorite places to eat right now just opened back up during COVID. And it's called Davenport. And the owner is Kevin Gibson. And he's doing um, a couple of lunches and a couple of dinners a week. It's really hard to start back up because people are having a really hard time hiring people. So most restaurants have very limited schedules. But anyway, he's an incredible chef. He has great food. Kelly Myers was um, for a really long time um, the head chef and opened um, Chico Restaurant, the uh, Mexican restaurant on Division and 37th, I believe it is. And her food is really amazing. Um, God, I don't know the name of a food cart, but one of my chefs opened a sandwich food cart that's really, really good. Um, let's see. I mean, there's just so many. And the minute I stop talking, I'm going to think of all the ones I was supposed to say. Um, let's see. Can you tell uh, us while you're thinking about that? Can you tell us a little bit about how your restaurants have pivoted during this crazy time? Like what have you you have dining outside? I saw, but what else have you done? That's been creative. A million, a million pivots. There was a million, like every week was another, a different change, you know? So we like all other restaurants, we were shut down in Oregon, um, the middle of March, March 15th, I believe. We had already decided we were going to close. We were really concerned about COVID. So I think the day before the governor officially decided we had already closed. And so then we, we, were, we were dark for many months. And we thought long and hard about what we could do safely. And we had many, many managerial meetings with... Um, about what we all felt like was okay to do. And we were concerned about even opening up the kitchen because kitchens are small because dining room space makes a lot more money than kitchen space. So you you cram people together in a kitchen to work. And that was really frightening during COVID because you know, there was so little that we knew. So we eventually opened just to do to-go food. And we did that for several months. And then we put, um, and we tried to stay as far apart as we could from each other in the kitchen, but keeping six feet apart in our kitchen space was not easy. Um, and then we opened by putting up a huge tent, like a like the kind of tent you see at a really fancy wedding um, in the parking lot. And fortunately our neighbors were in the, like a strip mall kind of situation. We're okay with that. And so we put in this huge tent with um, 10 tables in it, way spaced apart. And we decided to do what, what we called socially distanced dining. So every table that people reserved had a little side table um, that was where the, their food and their drinks and everything got delivered. So the server who come to the table and would drop all their food there and you would have to stand up and pick up your food and then bring it to you. And ordering happened as it did in many restaurants during COVID with a, the square thing where you looked at a square on your phone and yeah. took a picture of it. And then, <clears throat> you know, less than ideal, not, not very, um, hospitable i'll say but it felt safe to us and it was really important that our customers feel safe and that our employees feel safe because we were 
we, I feel like they were frontline workers. I mean, we were yeah. finding them and to like deal with people. They don't know, you know, they don't know anything. They don't know where they were, where those people, how much they care about COVID. And it was all mass required. And so you start eating and we were really, really lucky and that we had no COVID cases for like almost a year and a half. And, and by June 1st, every one of our employees was vaccinated and we thought we were home free. Yeah. And we were thrilled. Like we made it. We got everyone vaccinated. And this, we probably have 50 employees now. When we were fully operating pre COVID, we had 75. It was like we made it. We got everyone vaccinated. And then the, um, you know, the Delta variant and everything, the, we actually had someone. Um, we didn't have anyone test positive, but they were next to someone that tested positive, like a friend that didn't work at the restaurant. And we're like, oh, my God. And they were vaccinated, too. It's like, well, we're not home free and we're still not home free. <laughs> and yeah. we opened up our dining room. We've moved back inside the tent. We still have the tent in the parking lot because we need it as like a kind of like a pacifier in case something really goes wrong again. So we have it there for the end of the month of September, but um, we're back in the dining room. This My employees are much happier being in the dining room because it's so much less work than carrying everything out to the tent and setting up every day outside on the parking lot. And But, you know, we're still very cautious and we're, we're still, we don't know, you know, we don't have a feeling that we're home free. It doesn't yeah. feel like. Well, yeah, we really appreciate you coming on and talking, uh, talking with us and talking about it because I know that it's challenging and I know that restaurants, um, you know, I think that we think about healthcare workers and they have been hit hard with like the most amount of work. Yes. And then the oh, rest- yeah. I don't at all to belittle that because that is like what's yeah. no, I, I just, I think that, but I think restaurants have been hit just as hard, but in a different way because they've completely had to change all of the systems and then just try to hang on and survive. And, you know, a lot of my friends who have restaurants had to close over this time and couldn't figure out ways to do it at all, you know? And so I think that it's important to be able to talk about it and talk about how hard it is and challenging it is and that it, um, you know, it keeps changing. And so you do have to keep coming up with different things to do and find things that your customers and your employees all feel safe. And and it's, I know it's really hard to make those decisions. And so I know that you have to make those. So, um, you know, thank you for being able to hang on and, and doing it and making it through, even though maybe we're not through, but you've made it this far and that is something to celebrate for sure. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm kind of amazed that we didn't make it this far. And I just have to, like, really give a ton of credit to my amazing employees and my amazing managers that we just kind of decided let's we're just doing this together. And every week we're figuring out a new way. And I don't know. It, it's It's been a very team-building experience, that's for sure. Yeah. Who are, are your team members um, that have been, you know, helping you through all of this? Can we mention them? Well, yeah. For sure. Well, we have, um, I have three chefs, um, no, four chefs with me in the kitchen. I have um, my head chef, who's um, Brian Murphy. I have um, Brian Donaldson, who's his um, chef de cuisine. I have... Um, 
Rob Roy, who studied with um, Dario Cicchini, the butcher we were talking about earlier. Ooh. The title is um, officially Machalaya, which is Italian for butcher, but no one knows what it means. <laughs> and he's also a sous chef. And then I have um, Justin, who is also a sous chef. So those have been leading the kitchen. And then for the front of the house, I have an operations manager who is Nicholas Suhor, who has worked for us for um, at least um, 13 years. Wow. And Helena Coleman, who is our um, general manager, who has worked with us for, I think, six years now. And we have a new bar manager. Um, our bar manager moved away. Her name is Mariah. And a lot of people moved during COVID. You know, a lot of yeah, people they did. Had, did different things. So, um, and then I have an incredible, incredible um, wine um, steward manager who takes charge of all our wine list. And his name is Austin Bridges. And he left for Italy yesterday with his partner. And they're cooking um, for a writing workshop in Collier, which is Southern France. But then I, I, all plans, hopefully they don't change. I'm meeting him in Bologna in two and a half weeks. Oh, that sounds awesome. That'd be great. I understand Bologna is like a great place to be when you want to eat food. It's such a food center, but in like the super old school way. Like they have this amazing cuisine that like never changes and you would never want it to. And all of the best ingredients include Parmigiano Reggiano and aged balsamic vinegar, the mm. real stuff on the grocery store shelf, and prosciutto di Parma, and amazing hand rolled pasta. It's a, it's a pretty special place in the Italian food I've world. I've been there one time when I was 10 years old. My family was driving around Europe in a Volkswagen camper. I was sitting in the front seat and my dad was driving and he went down the wrong way on a one-way street. And those streets are really narrow. Yeah, they are. <laughs> it was quite a wild ride. I'll never forget that. That was pretty oh, funny. Oh, what a great childhood it sounds like you had. Yeah, you someday, someday I want to go back there. Great. Yeah. Well, um, we always like to ask our guests if they have any advice for women who want to uh, start businesses. So in your case, it would be women that want to start restaurants. What do you think about this time and place for people who want to start a restaurant business? Well, I think it's a really crazy fluctuating time for restaurants. And I don't know where the industry is heading. Mm -hmm. I think it's easy to say certain things like fine dining could possibly, you know, almost die and go away. It's much easier to make money by um, in a in the food business by um, say a food cart where there's no you're not paying servers and um, all the support staff that need to um, that fine dining requires that serves at the table top. You're just ordering at a counter and you're sitting down. There's like a really good model for making money. So and there's nothing wrong with that, but. Um, I would, you know, it's really interesting. I have a lot, you read a lot of stories about um, women being in the, in the food world and in the, in the restaurant world and um, being the only women and the ki- only person in the kitchen that's female and 
and having to deal with abuse and everything. But I never experienced that. My 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 job at Genoa was a lot. We were almost all women chefs with with very um, there was no. You know, there was none of that anger in the kitchen. There was no pan throwing. There was nothing. And so I always try to keep that at Nostrana. And I think that we've been very successful in that it's a, been a really good environment for um, for women cooks to, to grow up in and learn and learn about food and then go out on their own. So I would just, I would say, find find a great kitchen that you feel comfortable in where you don't feel like, you know, you're not treated as well as everyone else in the kitchen and learn as much as you can. And then think really carefully about how you can go out on your own and how you can um, do that without financially hurting yourself. So that's yeah. the scary thing is the money. I, think. I would yeah. think that this would be a really good time for people who, if they, um, you know, if that's something they're interested in, or if they've already worked in kitchens or currently working in them, it seems like a really good time to learn from people that you admire because because restaurants do need help right now and so you I would you know you could maybe find your favorite restaurant and see if you can work there because you probably can it seems like well you probably can because everyone needs employee I mean it's really yeah right now but I also think it's going to be a really turbulent time in restaurants for and I think that's going to be great because I think there's a lot of things in restaurants that just don't work like the inequality what the kids, the back of the house makes and the front of the house. And I think that's just going to all blow up and it's going to, it's going to have to sort itself out because it's been really not a healthy industry for a really, really long time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is the part that I always don't like, but um, we have to wrap things up. So one thing that I wanted to ask you is, um, since you are our first restaurant guest, we want to know as a community and for our listeners, how can we best support you, your restaurants and another restaurants in our community? Go out to eat. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you feel safe and only if you feel safe, just go out and also be kind. Mm -hmm. Everyone's struggling really hard to make in restaurant, make things safe for customers. We want it, but that doesn't mean it's the most um, like seamless um, hospitality dining experience that that was before. Because we're all figuring out on every, you know, like literally every week, every month, it keeps changing. So go out, be kind enjoy your experience and tell other people to go out. I love that. I Very think wise. I think that's wonderful. And we will do that for sure. Yes. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Well, thank you, Kathy, for joining thank us. You. It's great to have you as a guest. It was very nice to meet you, Kathy. Thank you very much. Really nice to meet you too. And I hope to see you at Nostrana. We record Masoni and Marshall live every week. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform like iTunes and Stitcher. Thank you to our audio engineer, Lon, and our production assistant, Chelsea. And if you want to be a guest on the show, send us a message on our Instagram, Masoni and Marshall, and we'll get you booked. Until next week, thank you for joining us, everybody. Bye. Bye for now. Market of Choice is a proud sponsor of Meaningful Marketplace. 
As a family-owned organ grocer for 42 years, Market of Choice strives to inspire, mentor, and assist a diverse group of local producers and foster equity in our communities. With 11 stores in Oregon, Market of Choice supports these craft makers, as well as farmers, fisherfolk, and ranchers, by bringing more than 7,000 local products to market. Together, we form a sustainable, community-based food system that serves our great state. To learn more, go to marketofchoice.com. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen. Learn. Launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program. 